You're listening to Q&A Over Coffee. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for obtaining accounting, tax, or financial advice from a professional accountant. Welcome, listeners, to the most recent podcast for Olson Thielen. We're excited to have you listening today. And today we have, uh, as a guest, uh, one of our principals, Scott Hoyles. He's in our tax department here at Olson Thielen. He has significant experience with working with business owners, tax planning issues, buying and selling business, exit planning, shareholder transactions, CS corporations, and uh, C corporations. We've invited him here today to share some of his insights. And today's topic is really about entity selection. So we get this call on a regular basis uh, on startups. And people wanna know, hey, I'm starting a business or I'm, I'm gonna make an acquisition. How do I get organized? So we think it's an applicable topic. So get another cup of coffee and uh, let's see what we have for today. So here's how we're going to set this up. We've also got Dan Owens in the room with us. He's one of our hosts on the podcast, along with Scott and myself, Tom Pesh. So categorically, there are many types of entities, and today's uh, comments will be limited basically to four that are pretty broad. The sole proprietor, the partnership, and the partnership includes the general and the limited. And then there's the corporate structure, which includes an S corporation and a C corporation, and I think that there are variations of that too, um, Scott, like co-ops and um, housing associations. There's all kinds of different entities. Yeah, yeah there's many different kinds. But too know. much detail for us. <laughs> and then there's the limited liability company. So we're going to ask Scott to just kind of walk us through some of the attributes of these different entities. So Scott, let's start with the sole proprietor. What is it about the sole proprietor that is unique? Yeah. First of all, thanks a lot for having me here today. I'm happy to be here and be a part of this podcast and try to share a little knowledge with people so they have a better idea of what's going on with entities. Um, And Tom, you're right. We get so many opportunities to talk to clients, prospects about what should they do with their entity selection. And the first one starting off, as you said, sole proprietorship, that's really the first most basic, most simple entity structure that there is. Um, and really, it's just go, it's you, it's putting it on your own individual tax return. And it's like, you don't know the right hand from the left hand. It, the money is coming out of your pocket going into the business. It's separate from other companies or other entity structures that we'll talk about that where you can't do that. You can't just take money out and put money in simple from, from your own pocket. Um, it has to go to a business structure. So the sole proprietorship is a very simple form, and, and I would say probably 15 years ago, that was probably pretty widely used, pretty simple. Um, and then LLCs came out, and that kind of changed the game. I still have some sole proprietors that have not yet wrapped themselves in the LLC. I should also comment, though, that the, the topics and the conversation we have today is not intended to be legal advice. So this sounds like our lawyers are chirping in my ear. But the reality of it is, is that as CPAs, we're not allowed to give legal advice, and we don't pretend to, and we don't want to. But most of the time, these different entities are really about risk management from protection from creditors. And the sole proprietor has what attribute about creditor protection or liability protection? They have 
none, none. basically. And it's so pretty definitive. Yep, yep. Unless you're really positive that your entity is not going to get sued, which is pretty much impossible nowadays, um, I would not suggest becoming just a sole proprietorship. Okay, so these attributes, one owner, not separately legal from the owner. The legal business could be a DBA, but it's typically, it could be like Scott Hoyle, tax consulting, and that'd be it. And uh, oftentimes we suggest that taxpayers have a separate checkbook, but that's kind of, um, as long as you have a separate set of records, that's the key, right? That's the key, yep. That's why it's so simple, so proprietors, you're not going to the bank and setting up a separate account. Although, as you said, we would definitely recommend doing that. Okay, so sole proprietors, pretty simple, pretty easy. Now, the next topic uh, or, or category would be the partnership. So the partnership, talk to us about a partnership, about how that works. So the partnership, and we'll just talk a general partnership, which you got to be careful of, right? Because if you're with a friend of yours that you're doing something together as a business, it doesn't even have to be set up as a partnership. You just became a partnership in the IRS's eyes. So make sure you pay attention to that and, and get your legal documents taken care of. And again, we're not giving legal advice, but get your legal documents taken care of and filed with the Secretary of State so you are operating as a partnership. And really the partnership is two or more people working together in a business. Um, and it really ends up being anything outside of a C-Corp or an S-Corp. It's just two people set up a business and they're working together. And I'm told that if you don't have a written agreement that the state has actually a default document. That is, I believe that is correct. That's what and legal has taught me over the years. Is that yep. No written document, that's, that doesn't mean you don't have an agreement. And you don't want the state taking over. You don't want the state to tell you how to <laughs> operate it. So one of the good things that we tell clients is that in a partnership, a written document is really key because it kind of defines the rules of the game. How much time commitment, what, what the partners are allowed to do, how the money is split. But from a taxation standpoint, what do you file as a partnership? So you're filing a Form 1065. It's a partnership return, and it's the federal, and then whatever state you're in, Minnesota, we'll just say, because we're in Minnesota. Um, so those two returns get filed. So there is another return, another administrative function that has to be done when you're doing a partnership return versus a sole proprietor. Um, so it costs a little more. The thing with partnerships is you're not paying as a, an employee of the partnership and you own the partnership, you can't pay yourself payroll. So it's a guaranteed payment. You can't write your checks and withhold your you know, taxes from that check and Social Security. It's actually flowing through your individual return and it gets taxed just like your sole proprietorship would on your individual return. But it kind of acts like payroll because you get like a monthly check or a twice a month check. Yes. But you, it doesn't run through the payroll system. So it's kind of odd. It's an odd duck. It is an odd duck. You're right. And and you can kind of set that fee as you want. You can do a guaranteed payment. Say I'm going to pay myself 100000 a year and I'm going to do that guaranteed payment spread out every month, every week, however you want. But you're not having taxes withheld on it. So the tax angle on that, you have to make estimated payments to keep up with that guaranteed payment. Plus, you have to pay estimated tax on the pass-through income. So try to explain to us, how does the pass-through part of the partnership work? Sure. So the 
So all the income and expenses and everything go on the partnership return, and you're coming down to a taxable income number. That taxable income is not being taxed inside the partnership. We're not going to get to the state entity level tax right now. We're just talking about federal. That federal bottom line number flows through to the individual return, and it gets taxed on the individual return for income tax to begin with. That's your first one. And then you're being taxed on self-employment tax also. So mostly on the guaranteed payments, depending on your structure. Could be guaranteed payments, could be the full bottom line of that partnership K-1. And those self-employment tax rates are kind of significant. Around numbers, well, how much are they running? It's 15.3%. Right. You know, so that's self-employment. That's besides income tax. So right. Got to remember that. I just had a conversation this morning with somebody, and I reminded them that it could be as high as 41%. You put a 20% Fed, a 6% state, and then the, the self-employment, that buoys up way past the 35%, 40%. So it used to be a third, a third, a third, or a third for the taxes, but not, I mean, it's a little higher, depending upon your situation. Yeah, especially. So that self-employment tax is kind of a wild card. Sometimes it comes out of left field. So if, if we've got listeners that are involved in this pass-through partnership, be careful about the self-employment tax because you don't even see it coming. Right. And at the end of the year, your tax bill's high, and you're like, oh, well, I paid my estimates for my income tax. Well, you forgot your Social Security which tax. Which is coming to you, which is a good, a good plan because you would identify that the income tax is not the only tax. It's the self-employment tax that's got to get estimated on as well. Yes, definitely. So the partnerships, um, two people, generally a separate return. You pay tax on the net income, regardless of how the cash flows. You could leave the cash inside the partnership, and potentially uh, self-employment tax, maybe not if you're a limited partner. How does a limited partner work? So the limited partner, they're they're getting, if they're not involved in the company, that's even better yet. They're maybe passive, not active. So if they're a passive owner, they're receiving the K-1. It's not getting subjected to self-employment tax but it could get subjected to net investment income tax, um, which is another tax we're not going to go into. Sorry. So we're talking about the structures and not all the taxes, but you just got to be careful of all the taxes that are involved, whether you're active or a passive investor in a partnership. So this is a point where I would encourage the listeners to be careful and seek advice because these this partnership, I think, is, is typically a little more complex than the S-corporation, and a little more complicated than the C corporation. They're a little more logical in my mind. But these partnerships are kind of strange because you got this maybe self-employment tax, maybe not. You got pass-through income regardless of cash flow. There's a whole set of issues around how they get taxed. Okay, so um, partnerships. So we'll leave that for the moment. Let's move on to, let's do limited liability companies, which are kind of a subset of the partnerships. What's the variation from the partnership to the limited liability company? So the limited liability company is really taking that C-Corp, S-Corp idea of the protection and you're putting it into a partnership format. Um, it's it's a, LLCs are a different animal because they can be anything. They can be a sole proprietorship, they can be a partnership, they can be an S-Corp, they can be a C-Corp, but you're a limited liability corp company. And it really has a lot of liability protection. That was the idea of why it came out to begin with. Um, and so your, your single-member LLCs, as we were talking earlier about looking at a sole proprietor, 
don't do that unless you're going to be a single member LLC. Have some protection for your sole proprietorship. I think that's the best way to go with that. And then your partnership, you have your partnership that can be a, a LLC. It's just a multi-member LLC. So, and it works just like a regular partnership does. It just has a little more liability protection to it. Not a lot else that it's uh, different from there, but you got to pay attention to your states because states are different in how they handle LLCs also. I remember years ago, I think it was in the late 80s, you know, I'm, I'm that old, that the LLC was originated in Wyoming. Was it the Wyoming LLC? Oh, yeah. Remember that? That's right. Yeah, That's so right. that goes back a ways. Yeah, and there's a lot of states that didn't accept it right away. I mean, And so the other thing that I would say that's a nuance is that the the S corporation and the C corporation has a lot of tax uh, legislative and um, tax court history in it. So we know how they operate. The LLCs are relatively new and the whole um, corporation tax as an LLC is kind of newer. Um, so there's some benefit to working with an S corp and a C corp. So let's do this. Let's move to the corporate structures and categorically, like we said at the top of this uh, cast, um, you have basically two types. You have the C-Corp and they have the S-Corp. And Dano, I want to bring you in on this because I know you work on a lot of the telco clients. And many of the telco clients are set up as corporations, I think, right? How do you see most of those on the telcos? Mostly corporations, yes. Uh, we typically see either, for most of our clients in the telco space, uh, family-owned companies. We have some stock-owned companies, uh, particularly in, in Iowa. And the other main business uh, type in this space is uh, cooperatives. Cooperatives. So one of those corporations that's kind of a subset of the general corporate entity type thing, right? Yep. A lot of those cooperatives are uh, organized as 501c12s, Okay. which is an interesting designation. And whether or not they're taxable depends on whether they pass the 85% test or fail the 85% test. If they pass the 85% test, that means more than 85% of the revenues are from members, then they actually file a tax-exempt Form 990. And, of course, there may be unrelated business income tax on that for certain revenue streams. But if they fail the 85% test, uh, then they then they uh, file a regular um, 1120. So we have a lot of experience in this telco space, and these cooperatives and these family businesses. Out of the, of the family businesses, do you see most of those are S-corporations or C-corps? I think it's probably a good mixture of, of both. Okay. Um, I probably actually see more C corps than I do S's with with my own my own kind of practice. But we, we do have several S S corp yeah, clients. I would agree with that. I would say that most of mine are C corps, but we do have some S corps, and there there's quite a few that maybe should have gone to an S corp. So if they're not an S corp, that's something that we would be looking at is maybe they should think about converting to an S corp at some point down the road, um, especially now when you have the built-in gains tax that it goes away in five years, it's pretty, pretty easy. So, so far the sole proprietor is an easy entity to set up. Partnerships can be done by default or by active uh, arrangement. You got these C-Corps, you got to go see a lawyer typically to get a C-Corp set up. And then after you get your C, after you get your corporation set up, you actually choose to be an S election, and that form is the twenty five fifty three form. It's election by a small business. 
companies. Okay. So. And so that what that does is that takes a corporate entity and it creates it as a pass-through. So let's talk a little bit about the C-Corp. So what are the unique characteristics about the C-Corp? Um, and we'll compare that with the S-Corp. Yeah. Let's start with the C-Corp. So I think the C-Corp is more on, I think people think about a company as C-Corps usually. They're getting taxed internally. It's not getting passed through to the individual and being taxed outside. It's taxed inside the company. So I think that's a little more unique. So I remember from business law class, the, the C-Corp had, the, the, the lawyer instructors always told us, they actually take on their own entity and the officers actually operate the C-Corporation. So, for example, if the three of us were operating a C-Corporation, CFO, CEO, COO, but the corporation itself has the ability to transact business. It can buy real estate, it can enter into contracts, it can hire people, and we act as the operators, but it has its own identity. For, for taxation purposes, it has its own tax return, and it pays, what, what's the rate of current corporate tax? Um, federal's 21% flat rate. And, and Minnesota Minnesota's is 9.85%. All right, so you put a 30% tax drag on that. Yep. And typically in the C-Corp space, you don't like to have the taxable income tax twice because when you try to get it out eventually, you do what? Yeah, you got to take a dividend out and you're going to be taxed as a dividend. So depending on your income level as an individual, it could be at 15%, it could be at 20%, but then you also have... 3.8% of a net investment income tax. So, And, there are, and there are ways to, to get out of a C-Corp um, by paying deferred compensation or paying payroll, but there's some traps on that. So we would encourage listeners to seek advice. Uh, if you got a C-Corp you're trying to get rid of or sell, um, just be cautious around that C-Corp. What else about the C-Corps that are kind of unique? Anything else that you could think of? You know, that gives... C-Corps are a good protection, right? They're like, that's why they created the LLCs because they're very um, protective for liability purposes and it protects their shareholders. Officers, um, there can be some personal liability when there's payroll taxes involved for officers of a corporation. So you got to be careful of that. Um, if you are setting up an entity and you're doing, I don't care what entity you're doing, don't do your own payroll. Um, farm out your payroll because there's just too many liability issues involved there. Um, you so don't want to get caught in the correspondence vortex because it's kind of yes. like a hurricane. <laughs> so I want to bring in Dan for a second. Dan, you and I are part of the auto practice. And when we see these big C-Corps, what are some of the operating characteristics that C-Corps are supposed to be doing typically to act like a C-Corp or a corporation, I guess it would be? What do you think? Well, I think they're generally designed to uh, make a profit well, we want to we want to be a profit, <laughs> but like the board of directors, um, what do you what do you see for operating characteristics in the yeah. in the big corps? Yeah, I, ideally, ideally, you would have a, a board of directors that meets, hopefully, on a regular basis. I've certainly had some clients that you know had a board of directors of one that met once a year, and there's some scribble on a piece of paper. I don't consider that to be ideal, uh, but if you could have a semi-annual or a quarterly meeting, um, have have potentially some outside directors, you know, depending if, um, if it's all family, sometimes it's nice to have that kind of outside, outside perspective. And when IRS, when they look at a C-Corp and they're challenging compensation or profit sharing or things of that nature, in those meeting minutes might be documented what, Daniel? Uh, 
they'll document the approval of dividends. There may be a compensation committee, but if not a compensation committee, there will be um, approval of uh, executive compensation, uh, approval of uh, monthly or annual board fees, uh, those even, kind of things. Even like fixed assets, they would want to re- approve that, have it involved there. And related party transactions, yep. leases, cars, uh, compensation, uh, spouses on the payroll, kids on the payroll, uh, travel to destinations for continuing education, those all add credence to the formality of the corporation, and they add fuel if you get tested by IRS. You just lay down your board minutes and say, yeah, we've, we've talked about all this. That's all. That's what we want to do. We want to have two cars, and they get cars. They get compensation. We lease the building, and here's all the detail. And that usually can stop IRS from getting overly zealous. Yeah, you know, and, and we find a lot of our clients, too. There's a lot of verbal discussions. It's not, it's not always fun to you know, take official meeting minutes, but it is important um, because it's the, the documentation is key. Okay. So so that's the C-Corp. It has its own tax return. It pays tax by itself. It acts like a corporation, and the officers run it. But, it, the, ta- but the net income stops at the C-Corp bubble. Then, comparatively, you have the S-Corporation. So let's talk about that for a minute, Scott. The S-Corporation, what's the, what, how is it different from the C-Corporation? So the S corporation, the C corporation can elect to become an S corporation. And what that does is it turns it into a flow through entity. So in like a partnership or even a sole proprietor, it flows through all the income credits flow through to the individual's return, the shareholders return. And so it's not, nothing is taxed inside the corporation, it's taxed outside at the shareholder level. And like the C corporation, as we talked about, there's double taxation. You have it taxed inside and you have it taxed as dividends get pushed out. Whereas S corporation, you push out the income, it's taxed at the individual level, but the dividends that you're going to push out, those are not taxed. Those are tax-free dividends as long as you have basis. In the S corporation. In the S corporation. Now, I just want to point out that in both the C-Corp and the S-Corp, you can have payroll, which is different than in the partnerships. So the corporate entity, it's like being employed by a big public company. It can be Scott Hoyles, Inc., you know, uh, running business here in Minnesota. You can pay yourself payroll even though you own the corporation, whether you're a C-Corp or an S-Corp. So the distributions. So talk to us about the traps around the S-Corporation distributions, just kind of broadly. Okay, S-Corp distributions... You need to be careful because you have to watch what is your basis in the company. Basis being how much did I put into the company to start it. Basis also includes income that was earned. Adds to the bucket. Adds to the bucket. Um, And any loans I put into the company adds to the bucket. Well, then I can take out distributions up to that amount. Now, if I take out distributions above that amount, that becomes a gain. It's basically a capital gain. And you may wonder, how do I take out more money? than earnings I've had, well, that's because you probably got a loan from a bank or somewhere else and you're taking that money out sooner than maybe should be. So that is a trap. And that is why we almost always insist on doing fall or year-end planning with with S-Corp or any client. Because in November, December-ish, depending upon how the client's doing, sometimes not everybody keeps their books every month. So if we can get quarterly financials, we take a good hard look in November, we determine that, hey, the client's got $100,000 of net income, but they've actually distributed 200. We may want to have them loan some money back in to avoid exactly that issue, that being the distributions in excess of basis. Yes, and causing capital gain and 
big surprise. And it's unnecessary. The that's the, right. that's the unique part about it. It's unnecessary with a little bit of planning. You know, if you have a hundred thousand dollar capital gain, the tax on that might be twenty five k, maybe thirty ish, and we're going to charge you a just a nominal fee to take a look and to have you strategically do something. So in the fall of the year is when we can actually change the tax returns. And this is one of those topics that we always look for. So exactly. the distributions in excess of basis. Now, also, how are the losses handled with this whole basis question? So if losses happen in a year, that goes against the basis. So it reduces your basis. But then that flows through to your individual return, and you're able to take that against any other income that's sitting on your individual return. So it's, it's helpful, especially in those starting years, if you you know, need, don't want to be paying taxes as an individual, you take that against your other income that's sitting there. So, so strangely enough, last year, um, October-ish, we had a professional services firm uh, join the firm, uh, and I was the provider for service, and they had made an acquisition, and we all know that when we have acquisitions, we have heavy depreciation in the first year. And I actually went in and, and managed, limited their basis to about a 20K loss. The practitioner was going to borrow money from their parents, and they were a little hesitant about it. But they had 20K of their own money. They were willing to put it in. So we put the 20K in. We took all the depreciation. We, we limited our loss to 20K because that was their basis. By design, they had been gainfully employed, her and her husband, from a, a corporation um, throughout the whole year. So we took a $20,000 loss, and we rolled over the rest of the deductions because 23, we're at 23, right? is going to be a much bigger year so they can have a lot of protection on the depreciation in the new year so we actually managed that basis for exactly that purpose and that was really a good example of good again year year-end planning in november catching it ahead of time yep yeah and so again i'll always say that the the best i think the best time is uh, the fall of the year for tax planning any other comments about the s corp just broadly well i don't know if we talked about it but the partnership, going from a partnership or a self-employed to C-Corp or S-Corp, you know, we have that self-employment opportunity, saving taxes by paying yourself payroll rather than paying self-employment tax on the whole bottom line. So that's one of the first big deals is you can limit your self-employment net income with a S-Corporation, right? Tell us about what do you think is the most cleanest income? Cleanest income? S-Corporation, cleanest income? No SE tax. No SE tax. It flows through. It's hitting your individual. And you no can, double taxation. You can manage your payroll to a reasonable amount. IRS yep. requires a reasonable amount of payroll. And then there's this, this distinction about this QBI thing. So Section 199, talk to us about this QBI. What does that mean? So the Qualified Business Income Deduction, um, that was brought out in the 2017 it basically allows a 20% deduction against your income on the individual return. And there's several different calculations that go into it in order to get to that number. Um, but basically, if you have $100,000 of net income coming from the S-Corp, pretty much you're going to get a 20% deduction of that $100,000, so $20,000 against that $100,000. So it's just helping out your tax. So really your tax, if you were at the 37%, full tax rate that federal has it really brings it down to 30 percent about 29.6 percent so and it, great that, savings we think that was one of the big big uh uh positive significant tax law changes in most recent history because you're actually excluding income and just as a reference the reason they did that was to try to bring parity to the s corporation individual rates versus the c corporation 
corporate rates. There was some, there was an attempt to get to parity, yep. which I, is I, I always find interesting. You know, why does the Congress do what they do? I always find that interesting. Now, the the hitch or the the snag on SS or on the uh, QBI is what? Yeah, the SSTB, so which means service companies. So basically, like a CPA firm or a law firm, if they're doing services, the clinics, the clinics. There's a lot of firms that are caught in this trap. There's income limitations involved. So once it gets to your individual return, if your income is over a certain dollar amount. I think it's 340000 somewhere around there for a married filing joint return, you start getting limited to that 20%, and it pretty much phases out fast. Now, what we do oftentimes is in when we have a clinic, uh, we work with a lot of optometry clinics, we know there's a retail track in their business, and we know there's a service track. So we go in and we actually divide their accounting, and we break out the retail track, which is not subject to the SSTB. And that's been very unique for us. I mean, we, we've gotten good deductions. We think it's a good piece of law. It, it's, it's, it's in the code, and it has applicability. Uh, Scott, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, how often we actually see entities uh, of our clients that actually change their, their organizational structure. Um, and, and how challenging is that? That's a very good question. It's usually companies that are, are forward-thinking. And it's not that often, actually, because... I don't think they think about it. And unless maybe we're bringing it up or they're out chatting with others and, and somebody says, hey, are you an S-Corp? Why aren't you an S-Corp? Well, then you have opportunity to talk to them and they're calling you. And sometimes it's like bad on us for not bringing it up first, maybe. But, um, but we can talk them through it. And it is a pretty big deal. You have to go through a lot of calculations to really figure out, does this make sense or not tax-wise? Because there's a five-year period there if they sell assets once becoming an S-Corp, that's a taxable event inside the S-Corp still. After the five years, it's not. It's done. Then you move on. But Another question is, uh, Tax Cut and Job Act of 2017 lowered the corporate rate to 21%. Are we seeing some of our clients switch from uh, S-Corporation to a C? Is that, um, are we seeing some of that? Some of it, but I have not seen as much as I thought there actually would be, because there are some benefits to being a C-Corp, because Speaking of benefits, you can deduct benefits in a C-Corp, whereas an S-Corp, a little harder to do. You don't always get that opportunity. It has to be added to the W-2 of a, of a shareholder, um, whereas a C-Corp, you deduct that. But good question. I think that was the big scare. Everybody's going to switch to a C-Corp, but that's kind of why they put qualified business income deduction in there. To Sometimes kind of I'll it. see a, a corporation uh, start and remain as a C-Corporation if they want to retain profits and try to grow the business. They plow everything back in, so they're continually reinvesting, buying equipment, so they cover their net income with depreciation, and they can run it up, you know, over a period of five to ten years, and then maybe they might sell it out to a, maybe a big VC group or a, a roll-up entity of some sort. So sometimes that's a good reason to be a, a C corp. Yeah, and I think uh, to Tom's point, I, you know, that there is that accumulated earnings provision uh, for C corps, but. How, I'm assuming we rarely would see that, um, that the IRS pursues that, correct? It's funny you say that because I just ran into that <clears throat> on a sale of a company, large sale, and it was not on the tax returns from the prior company that I took it over from and got to the end of the year and say, how come we have these huge distributions in excess of basis? Well, come to find out they had like $5 million of accumulated earnings and profits that we needed to do a 1099 div on. So 
a little bit of a surprise. We hate that. We, we hate, hate surprises. That. No surprises. That's what that fall planning is about. Yep. Avoiding surprises. Usually I make the commitment to taxpayers by, if you hire us by New Year's Eve, you'll know where you sit. Simple as that. And then the, the tax compliance season becomes kind of uh, operational and, you know, we can start thinking about the next year and what's coming because we know if a taxpayer says, well, you know, you're going to owe 28 grand and it comes out to 27, you know, right on the nose. I'm, you knew that was coming. You knew that back in December. And that they can plan for that. Exactly. Tom and Scott, one of my favorite uh, TV shows that I watch on the airplane is um, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations. <laughs> Maybe we should have one called No Surprises. <laughs> we hate surprises. I'll say it again. Because we uh, lay, we lay, yeah. lay, lay awake at night worrying for our clients. I mean, seriously. Because we, this is, you know, it's like a lot of professions. When the clients come to us and they trust us, they really need to trust us, and we need to take that very seriously because they don't know that there's a limitation on their loss. They don't know that the QBI is not available. They don't know that they've paid just paid themselves not enough income if they're a C corp or I mean an S corporation. They just don't know these things, and so they're relying on us to get it right. So it's pretty weighty, or at the end of the day, it's, it can be. It's very complex. Our world's gotten very complex. So in sum, here we are. Hopefully that coffee went down good for Scott. I know you're a coffee guy. Didn't you used to own a uh, coffee place? I did. Used to is the word. Used, used to. to. So you have a good varied background as well as others. So that's today's edition of the Q&A coffee business legal structure from a tax angle. We want to thank Scott for, for sitting in on this uh, session and Daniel offering some comments from the telco space. Now, the nonprofits, just before we're done, the nonprofits don't really pay a lot of tax except for when? Except for when they have significant unrelated business income. Okay. So if they're not in their mission and they're selling, I don't know, something on the side, they have to pay their tax just like the rest of the U.S. taxpayers. Yeah, there's significant exclusions for like investment income, for instance. A lot of our nonprofits have significant, uh, you know, realized, unrealized gains on securities, and none of that's taxable. Okay. All right. So that's, so again, I'll just tell the listeners, be cautious about picking an entity, seek advice. The lawyers are typically good at helping out, get set up, but you really need to seek advice from a competent uh, tax advisor. Uh, We're always willing to help uh, because there are nuances. Sometimes you want to be a C-Corp. Sometimes you want to be a partnership. A lot of the real estate deals are partnerships. They're LLCs. A lot of the professional firms are PAs or professional associations or corporations. So there's a lot of kind of audible, uh, unique uh, stuff to consider. So we want the taxpayers to make sure that they they seek advice. So with that, I think we're out of time and we want to let our listeners get back to their day job or their next cup of coffee. And so we thank you for listening and and, uh, greetings to all. Check out all of our podcast episodes on the Q&A over coffee page on the Olson Thielen website. This is also a place where you can sign up to be notified whenever a new episode goes live. You can also listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon. And be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.